Hello, I'm Michelle. And I'm Lucy. Welcome to Tudoriferous, the biographical podcast that examines the lives in the Tudor era. And today we're going to give you a sneak after view, post view -view. of, uh, well, post listen of um, some of the Patreon episodes we've put out this year. Yes, yes. We've got uh, Katarina Sforza. And of Brittany. Mm-hmm. Uh, Machiavelli. Machiavelli. Well, a special episode on the Patsy conspiracy. Yes. And then, yes, across the ocean to see the lovely Moctezuma. Yes. So if you're interested in any, all, or some, or one. <laughs> Come those. join us on Patreon. <laughs> yes, we're a lot more professional on Patreon, we're, I think, we? than we are today. <laughs> be our normal (laughs) (laughs) so we would just like to thank our wonderful patrons who keep us in books Mm -hmm. thank you yes the books a lot of books (laughs) books research papers articles (laughs) going to the calendar state papers (laughs) yeah we we couldn't afford to do it without you (laughs) we'd have bankrupted ourselves ages ago (laughs) And another thank you to our voiceover artists, Steve and Ali. Yes. And our musical genius, your husband, Rob. Rob, yeah. But also, we'd like to thank the Reginald Bray Choir. That's Steve and Ali, Jim, Tony, Rob and B. And oh, I could thank um, Umberto because he did the voice for Leonardo yes. last year. Yes. I don't think we thanked him last time. So thank you, everybody. And thank you, everyone who's listening, because by the time this comes out, we will have or should have passed the 100,000 downloads. Wow. And that's 100,000. Yes. When we, we started, we were expecting rubbish. five and we were going to have to force family members to listen. <laughs> <laughs> my family gave up long ago. So did mine. Mine didn't even yes. start. Well, my parents are, but my husband listened to the first five minutes he's like nope i'm out (laughs) i already have to listen to you talk to me about this every time it's 14th century french i don't want to actually listen to the episodes no rob doesn't listen my daughter used to Uh, she doesn't anymore (laughs) but thank you to all of you who do yes thank you very much makes us feel quite not so strange (laughs) like we're weirdos that have a very niche group interest (laughs) i don't think tudors are niche are they no, but the people with that we're discussing certainly are half of them. Oh, yes. We get to them and we're like, who is this? <laughs> we don't know. Yes, but by the end of it, we know everything there is to know yes. about them. <laughs> Very so true. So I hope you're all having a lovely uh, and hopefully not too hungover New Year. Yeah. And as your New Year's resolution, perhaps you'd like to join Patreon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be nice. I'm looking at a couple of books that are exceptionally expensive. (laughs) So carry on listening and you'll hear some snippets of past episodes and one that's to come out within the next few days. Yes. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, that was a complete mess, wasn't it? (laughs) A man who was loyal to Caterina, Ludovico Ercolani, who had conveyed the message she'd shouted from the window 
managed to sneak. I'm not quite sure whether he took it to Bologna or Milan. I would have thought, given the time Bologna is so thing, quick. Bologna would probably be more likely. But yeah. he, he managed to sneak into the Porta San Pietro where Caterina and her family were being held. And he and Caterina held a secret conversation, whereupon he slipped out and went to the Ravaldino Fortress to talk to Tommaso Feo. Because ah. between the three of them, they'd hatched a plan. Ooh. Mm. With only three people. Well, Caterina, Equolani, and Thomas Tommaso Feo in the fortress. And hopefully the few are the retainers. better. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I suppose so. Keeps it secret. Yeah. Equolani went to the papal legate and said that he had a message from Feo. Feo was willing to give up the fortress, but only on condition that Caterina pay him his back pay and write him a reference so he could get another job. Caterina was to come alone without the Orsi, apparently. The papal okay. legate thought, great, problem solved. But the Orsi said, no way. No. <laughs> <laughs> that woman is plotting something. That and she'd be leaving her children behind with them, though. Mm. A compromise was made. A, okay. meet, a meeting between Feo and Caterina would take place outside the wall where everyone could see them. So everyone said, well, okay, fair enough. As Caterina staggered up to the fortress, she was the distressed widow and mother. She could barely walk, which touched the hearts of the papal legate and the crowd, but didn't fool the Orsi for one minute. <laughs> <laughs> we now know she acts well. Feo and Caterina talked for a while, and then Feo invited Caterina into the fortress to sign his references. Caterina had fallen into a crumpled heap by this point. The Orsi brothers said, no, definitely not. But the papal legate agreed as long as she took one other person with her and didn't take longer than three hours. Three hours? <laughs> to sign her references. <sighs> Caterina slowly got to her feet and dragged her body across the drawbridge. The guards parted their lance to let her through. Caterina then turned back to the crowd, the papal legate and the Orsi brothers smiled flipped them the bird and did the <laughs> did the renaissance version of giving them the finger <laughs> screw you suckers except they have your children well we'll come to that it was described by an eyewitness as fi le quattro fichi doing the four figs and what you do you bend your first and second finger around your thumb so that the tip of your thumb just protrudes from them okay yeah that's, that's it that's their version that's not so... Well, the finger is the male version. The fig is the female. Oh! <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> we need to bring that back. <laughs> we still need to bring that back. Well, in fact, the, the, the fact that the eyewitness said she did four of them, quattro fichi, implies that she did it with both hands going. <laughs> yeah, coming. <laughs> yeah, you students. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm teaching people that. <laughs> But that wasn't that wasn't something countesses did. This was what common soldiers did. <laughs> True. <laughs> what do you call that? It's not flipping the bird. Then it's I don't know, showing the nubbin. I, <laughs> I really don't know what to say. Anyway, Katerina disappeared into the gloom of the fortress, leaving everyone outside stunned. They couldn't believe what they'd just seen. No! <laughs> and, uh, amazingly, everyone stood there, dutifully waiting until... Using Anne out of the pages of history turned out to be quite tricky. Mm. 
most of what I could find to read on her are hagiographic or hagiographic. Oh, dear. (laughs) Yes, she is perfect in every way, of course. And if she ever did make a mistake, it was either glossed over, made to be someone else's fault, or she only did it once, learned her lesson, and for the rest of her life, she was a saint. Mm, That's not how we do things here. (laughs) No. She was skilled. She was beautiful. She was generous. She was practically a saint. This all sounds lovely, but there are a few mentions of rather severe smacks and beatings handed out to those who misbehave. And when I say misbehave, I mean are not pure. Ah, misbehave in that sense. Yes. Yes, you did not behave as a chaste woman. Does that mean actually losing their virginity or just being a little bit flirtatious? Being caught with a man alone. Right. Oh. So, you may just be talking to somebody accidentally in a hallway. Hmm. Yeah. And the littlest she called her children of honor. She provided them clothes rather than making their family provide them and gave them presents, but only on the condition that they had been to confession recently. Hmm. If you're pious, you get gifts. If you're not, you're in trouble. (laughs) She demanded the highest standards of behavior from her children, Severely punishing any fault whatsoever. For example, there were two pages, there are about eight or nine, there is some discussion, who were riding the mules in front that were carrying her litter. They were not able to keep the mules in the same gait to provide her a smooth ride in the litter. If you can imagine, one's going one way, one's going yeah. the other way, and you're rocking side to side. Anne apparently yelled, Berdaya! You shall be whipped, you and your companion. She accepted absolutely no excuses, and when they arrived at their destination, she had them both flogged. Which was in a state of turmoil because the Venetians were coming, so obviously he could empathise with that. And Louis and Maximilian were squabbling over who owed what to whom. And Maximilian's troops were plundering and ravaging and making the inhabitants wish that the Venetians would hurry up since they had to be better behave than Maximilian's lot. Machiavelli sent back panicky missives to Florence. The last thing they wanted was Venice on the move again. And he wrote a poem on the lines that war is hell, including references to Venice, Maximilian and Louis. (laughs) Quote, every man hopes to climb higher more by pushing down now this one, now that one than through his own virtue. To each person, another success is always maddening. Wherever your eyes are fixed and turn, the earth is soaked with tears and blood, and the air full of cries, sobs and sighs, Now we might be thinking, you know, good old Machiavelli writing poems about the horrors of war. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, and this is one of the occasions I don't think you're going to like him very much, he was writing back to a friend about an encounter he'd had with a prostitute in the dark. Oh, God. That's not, the, that's not the problem. He wasn't going to, he said, but he was suffering from conjugal famine. So he did. <sighs> Having done the deed, and Machiavelli describes it in a, a good deal more graphically than I intend to, he got a torch and looked at the lady. Quote, Ye gods, I nearly dropped dead on the spot. That woman was so ugly. She had hardly any hair, which meant that I could quite easily see lice parading across her head and sticking to her eyelashes. She had a scar which split open her nostril, revealing copious amounts of snot. Her mouth was twisted and drooling. 
He says he, he looked so horrified that she tried to say, what's the matter, sir? But she had a stutter and couldn't get the words out. Oh. And he was so appalled, he said her breath was so rancid, that he threw up all over her, unquote. Oh. I wondered about this poor lady. <laughs> I mean, what had happened to her to get into this state? And what's that scar on her face? And also, he never mentions paying the woman. I presume he did, but... On the plus side for his wife, Machiavelli vowed never to do that again. At least while he was Too in late. Lombardy. You already have syphilis. <laughs> well, there is an uncannily similar story about Cesare Borgia and oh a prostitute gosh, in Naples. So gross. That's so gross. And she was so ugly that he threw up over her. So I wondered if Cesare had told Machiavelli this story and he thought he'd pass it off as his own. <laughs> Why would you pass that? Of all the stories you could pass off, pick something nice. Oh! I don't know, perhaps he thought he'd dine out on it for the rest of it. But it just, their story just seemed very close to Cesare's. Oh my gosh, that's so gross. That is so gross. It's quite a good description though, but I thought poor woman, what a situation. No kidding. Huh. Machiavelli was keen to go home, and it wasn't just that encounter that made him homesick. He was also short of cash. And he really seems to have had enough of it all. Without waiting to be told, Machiavelli headed home. And it, <laughs> probably thinking, please don't let me have it, please don't let me have it. It was a horrible journey, bitter cold, and there were bands of brigands preying on travellers. And bad news came from Florence. He received a letter from a friend telling him that a masked man had appeared at the house of a notary with two witnesses. I gather it's sort of business as usual in Florence, but maybe oh he goodness. was in... I don't know. He might have been staying behind, behind the walls. I would. But then suddenly, Lorenzo packed his bags and set off. He was going to sort this out by himself literally by himself. He made his plans in secret, although he did send out scouts to check whether his intentions would be welcome. At dawn on the 6th of December 1479, Lorenzo sneaked out of Florence and made for Pisa. Oh, so... He's not going to Rome. Yeah. <laughs> he set sail from there on the 14th and arrived in Naples four days later. Really? And although I said he'd sneaked away, he didn't go empty-handed. Knowing that the name of Medici meant wealth, he made sure he was weighed down with gifts for everybody. How do you sneak out when you've been buying gifts for everybody? <laughs> oh, these are for me. These are for me. These are for me. I have five. Yes, I want five. Thank you. Yes. Well, it'd be all his own own stuff. I mean, he had he's got a lot of stuff, so he might oh, have just... True. Yeah. ransack his own palace <laughs> yes i was thinking nobody nobody minds um, seconds birthday presents <laughs> that you picked off your own, sh own shells if they happen to be diamond rings <laughs> and golden <laughs> goblets do they <sighs> yes they might not want a dog-eared book but they might not be too worried about diamond rings yeah news of lorenzo's meeting with ferrante spread rapidly across italy now it was looking as if ferrante had tricked everyone and this caused consternation everywhere because people thought, well, he, he must have invited Lorenzo. I mean, Lorenzo wouldn't just turn up ah. on spec. He must have been on the other side all along. 
Venice was annoyed because it looked as though they'd been overthrown in favour of Naples. The Pope and Girolamo Riaria were annoyed because they thought they had Ferrante in their pockets. Milan was annoyed because they thought any negotiation with Naples about the Florentine issue should be done by them. So Lorenzo had successfully pulled a lot of rugs out from a lot of feet. (laughs) (laughs) But what had Lorenzo really got that would interest Naples? Well, he had poetry and he had charisma. And he had gifts, I suppose, but... Lorenzo stayed in Naples for two and a half months. And some must have wondered whether the slippery Ferrante was actually keeping him as a prisoner. But in fact, it was almost certainly because he didn't want to see Lorenzo go. He liked him. Aww. And when Lorenzo finally left, he couldn't stay He couldn't stay away any longer. He had trouble at home. Yeah. The negotiations hadn't been finalised, but Ferrante had gone from being an enemy to being a friend. I'm a best friend. I have a special friend. Yes, which had changed the whole map of Italy. Oh, goodness. Right. Naples is huge. Yes, it is. <laughs> And on the day that Lorenzo arrived back in Pisa, a peace treaty was signed in Naples. And the Pope had very reluctantly agreed with it. And the war was over. And that was all down to Lorenzo getting on a boat. And going to Naples. Reading some poems to the King of Naples. He must have been a very good poet. I don't think poetry would have done that. Well, that's what he came back to say. He probably didn't mention, actually, I've taken half the treasury of Florence with me. (laughs) No, it was all the poetry. It was positive reinforcement. Every time he did something I liked, I gave him a coin. (laughs) (laughs) Then when I rang a bell, he started drooling. (laughs) It wasn't a perfect piece for Florence. Lorenzo was still expected to go to Rome to beg forgiveness from the Pope. That's exactly the same. As every society in human existence. Yes. Some some boys were set aside for the priesthood, in which case they'd learn religious stuff, obviously, but also the calendar and writing. I don't know whether it was a younger son thing like it was on this side of the Atlantic or whether it was just people who showed an interest, people who weren't very good at killing. Well, actually, no, that doesn't work, as we'll see in a minute. Yes. It wasn't the easy option. For a start, they had to remain celibate, which I thought was quite interesting. Why do priests at so many places have to be celibate? I don't know. Hmm? Could it be so you don't have a wife and children and aren't distracted from the gods? Probably. And remember, they were also the ones that were responsible for the human sacrifices. They would have to drug the victim, tie them down and cut out their heart. And later, they would have to clean the skull and put it on the skull racks... And make some spiritually infused concoction from the victim's body parts, a sort of holy stock, yeah. really. <laughs> I mean, to be an Aztec priest, you need a strong stomach. <laughs> yeah. And punishments at priest school were harsh. Drinking, for instance, was punished by waterboarding. <gasps> yeah, you want a drink? I'll make you drink. <laughs> oh, my goodness. By Moctezuma's reign, there were so many sacrifices that more and more priests were needed just to fulfil the quota. Now, is it true that the sacrifices were from captives? Yes. Yes. Decimating the surrounding area of all their enemies. Yes. No wonder it's an empire that lasted so long. And it became a political tool. Yeah, as we'll see in a second. Priests could easily be spotted 
by their mutilated ears as part of a religious self-mutilating bloodletting thing and by the fact that they had blood in their hair. And I don't mean sort of splashback. I mean, with each sacrifice, they would rub the blood in their hair. So they either had their hair matted with dried blood or dripping with flesh blood, which I thought must have made the celibacy easier, I suppose. Oh, gosh. I was going to want to sleep with someone with blood in their hair. Ah. <laughs> Some priests specialised in divination based on the day on which people were born. Certain days were lucky, unlucky or indifferent. For instance, one snake, which is the name of a day, was favourable to merchants. Seven flower was favourable to scribes and weavers. And four winds to magicians. But if you were born on one jaguar, you would die by being sacrificed. You would go to heaven, of course, though. So that's even their own people? It was uh, definitely captives. And that was a big thing. Bring back as many captives as you can. We need to keep up the quota because the gods expect it. If you're born on two rabbit, by the way, you became an alcoholic. What alcohol did they drink? Oh, tequila? I don't know. It's mezcal now, isn't it? But corn base? Maybe it was... Well, they had a lot of corn. I can Google it now. What alcohol? Polkay. 